episode two of Rallon's Recap, and today I'm joined by Charlie Morgan. Charlie currently writes for the Daily Telegraph and mostly writes about rugby. Charlie, thanks for taking time out of your day to come on the show, and how are you this evening? No worries, Richie. Yeah, really good. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. So, to get things going, uh, we've just seen the back of the November series, which turned out to be a very enjoyable watch for us Irish fans anyway but I'd like to purely focus on England for now because if you think back to several months ago in the summer there were plenty of people questioning Eddie Jones's methods and selection along with some individual performances so I'm eager to know what the general consensus is in England about their rugby team currently and Eddie Jones after the November series. Yeah, I mean, really, really intriguing uh, autumn in the context of the World Cup cycle for England. Uh, you know, just as just as interesting, if not more in, interesting than, than anybody else's. And I think it does have to centre on on Eddie Jones. You're right. They, the first thing that he said when he came into the job that it was that his priority was kind of um, forging or reforging this English style of rugby that he felt had deserted England a little bit during the 2015 World mm. Cup, which was such a disaster. I feel like he did that and he and he was doing that using players that weren't necessarily uh, anything new. He was using experienced players and Billy Vinipola was fantastic and this long kind of winning run transpired, I think. I certainly think it's fair to say that at the start of this year, um, that maybe deserted England a bit, but it was also probably that that England got found out tactically. Um, other teams had, had developed their depth a lot better. They developed sort of a little bit of tactical nuance in their game, and um, there was you know those losses in the Six Nations spoke to that. And then they came up against a really tough uh, South African side at, at home and lost lost that series too. Um, this autumn, though, I feel like we've learned a lot about England and that they can be a little bit more adaptable than maybe we thought they could. They did. The three wins was kind of was in, in a way it was the minimum because I don't think yeah. England were expected to beat New Zealand, but South Africa were always going to be tough. And then the, the other the other two games were Japan, who you know, dis, with no disrespect, disrespect for them, England should have beaten them at home and did. Um, you know, they they're a capable side, um, and you know they play exciting rugby. They're cohesive, but England England should have always kind of been favourites for that. And then Australia have had a bit of a messy year. So three wins has been the um, has been the minimum that was achieved. But I think the fact that England have managed to do so without Vinipola, without two Vinipola brothers, without a couple more guys, people like Chris Robshaw, um, who's he had his critics, but has been a kind of that glue player for England. To do it without them has kind of shown that England can 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 play a slightly different way with a sort of a lightweight, a slightly more lightweight back row, lightweight mobile back row. So kind of it's been it's been encouraging overall. I feel and I, th- I think you know John Mitchell, the new defence coach, has his stock's risen, but I think Eddie Jones's has as well. Mm. And that's that's an important point you mentioned there about John Mitchell and a lot of people. I remember reading several articles about how the fact that Eddie Jones previously in World Cups he came in like with South Africa he came in as kind of an advisor role, and some people were saying perhaps he could do with someone like that, a very experienced coach to come in that not only focuses on their job, but then can also add to the setup. And I've no doubt that John Mitchell obviously is focusing on the defensive side of things, but from what you're hearing has like, what, what changes have you seen say from the six nations, you know, eight, 10 months ago to current England. And if John Mitchell has made a, a big impression what sort of impressions has he made on the current crop of players? So we, when when he came in, what sort of the kind of um, the talk that spread across, I guess, the English press corps was that it was going to be bad cop, bad cop, and it was and John Mitchell yeah. was this really intense character that was just going to be just as intense as as Eddie Jones. And the RFU paid a lot of money to get him out of his contract with the with the Blue Bulls uh, in down in South Africa. So it's a big gamble on their part. What kind of we've come to realise, and what certainly the kind of the public impression that he's given in his in his press conference in his kind of press huddles, John Mitchell is that he's seems extremely extremely laid back. Um, he seems to be working very hard on the detail of the defence. They've altered their defensive system a little bit. But the really interesting thing to me is that he's taken on this role, um, and he said this in a mini camp. I, thought, I can't really remember when that was. I feel like it might have been in October, just to kind of tune up a few plans for the autumn and um, before they actually got together. Uh, but he said that he was going to be a back row mentor specifically. 
and I found that really interesting because he lost Billy Vinopola on the on the on the eve of um, on the eve of that camp. So there are always going to be these changes, um, and then sorry, and then kind of it's also important to note that they lost Nathan Hughes as well. So this this crazy yeah. suspension. Um, so they were going to have to play without these two kind of real uh, providers of front football that, that Eddie Jones has has lent on, and they had to do things slightly differently. And um, so for John Mitchell working with the back rows, Eng- England conceded three holding on penalties per game during the Six Nations in the across the whole autumn, across their four games, despite having a bit of a brain explosion against Japan. They conceded three holding on penalties in, throughout the whole of the autumn. Their breakdown performance was just so much more accurate. And I think, you know, that's that has to be, you know, that's not a, um, you've got to look at that in the joined up sense. That's, that's to do with how, cohesive they've been in an attack and how good their support players be and how kind of clean those attacking patterns have been but John Mitchell can certainly take some credit for that too um you know this this England kind of they've been they've kind of performed their struggles I guess for years now have been underpinned by um this kind of perception that they don't have a natural fetching seven they seem to have certainly Tom Curry was seen to be the heir to that and he had a he had a really good series in South Africa, but he was then injured um, just the start of the second half, I believe, against South Africa in the first game. And Sam Underhill's mm. kind of really kicked on, and that's been another huge positive. So, yeah, I, I totally think it's fair to say that actually the, what's gone right for England, um, John Mitchell's been at the, at the centre of, of quite a bit of that. Interesting. Oh, and they're, they're obviously very impressive stats considering with the Italy game and even the Scotland game in last year's Six Nations, the talk of the town and the press conferences after the games would have been about the breakdown woes. So it's good to see that they're obviously adapting to their weaknesses and showing that they're actually improving and having the facts to to back it up. But like I'm sure I'm sure you've um seen it with some of your co workers or other journalists in in England. Do you think the criticism of Jones has been fair to this point? Because he's still and correct me if I'm wrong, he's got the highest win percentage of any English coach. He obviously had that incredible unbeaten record. He's won major trophies. Do you think it's been fair or do you think that the fact how he managed it, some of his training methods, team selections, results, that that criticism was warranted, especially in the summer months? I think when the dust has settled, maybe when he's left this job, I think maybe he will probably admit that the dealings between the RFU and, and the club's just must be a shock to everybody who's new to it. Um, what you've got to remember when you look at his predecessor, Stuart Lancaster, is that he had a history in the English club game. So he'd been with Yorkshire and he'd, in, he'd been in the RFU system with age, with age group and kind of Saxon sides. So he was, he was wary of those um, relationships that needed to be managed. Now, I think someone coming from the outside like Eddie Jones has, regardless of his experience in experiences, like you say, in, in tournament rugby and in, um, sorry, international tournament rugby, I'm, I'm talking about World Cups and, and galvanizing mm. sides for that. I still think those those relationship manage, managing those relationships is a, is a new thing for him. So I, I think he will kind of look back and, and say, I, I could have done that. I could have done certain things differently. Training loads certainly. I know, I know Bath in particular, but they've been hit. They've been crippled by injuries of their players while on England time, and uh, I know there's kind of there've been queries as to as to England's training methods. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. It's, it's, it, that's a, that's a tough one. I think. I think. I think he's certainly getting used to things. I think another a few things with sort of selection. I think he's managed. If you take this this autumn, his selection has actually been seriously good. I think um, if you look at that Japan game, um, that he he gave a few guys a chance, and I, and I don't think you know it's not on him that those those guys in in kind of fringe positions. And for example, say. Um, you look at someone like Jack Noel, who he played at, at 13. If Jack Noel had done really well at 13, and he might have done had he had a better, um, better platform and kind of and quicker, quicker phase ball during that game, that's a huge bonus for the World Cup. If, if Jack Noel couldn't fill in at 13, um, I think he might, he might actually actually at Gloucester yesterday speaking to uh, Johan Ackerman, the Gloucester coach, and sort of sort of asked him whether he was surprised or whether he was frustrated that. Gloucester didn't have any representation during the autumn, despite um, you know, despite going pretty well in the Premiership. And he actually mm. said, "Look, what you've got to realise from a coaching point of view is that um, you've got to play stock in your own opinions of players. And actually, for a player's a player's domestic form has got to be so much better and so striking 
to knock off these guys that an international coach trusts. So I actually think, you know, Don Armand's the big, the big one that kind of um, gets bandied around as, and, and Danny Cipriani is the other one. So we might come on to that later, but are they mm. playing so much better than the, than the incumbents that they, that, that Eddie Jones prefers? I'm not entirely sure that they have been. So actually I, th- I think his, his, his selections have been, have been pretty good overall. And I think this autumn was kind of a big tick in the box for him. And I suppose we nearly have to coverage, well, cover it with regards to just some of the key selections. So, like, when I look at England right now, and I think they're one of the few teams, like, if I'd say, look at my own nation, Ireland. Yeah. Yes, there's great competition for places. There are two or three, maybe four positions in that 23 that are up for grabs. But I think everyone knows, and I think Joe Smith has a good idea of what his best team is and who he can trust the most. Why with Eddie Jones, it still seems... There's four or five, maybe even six players that he. I don't know if he fully trusts yet, or if he okay. if he fully believes they're better than what's say beneath them on the bench. And like you look at say someone like Dylan Hartley, a lot of people back him for a set piece and his leadership. But then a lot of people say as an overall player, Jamie George brings a lot more to the table. Other people as well will cite Cipriani saying he's one of the those kind of X factor tens. He's played really well for. Gloucester and they've gone well in the Galler Premiership I'm just wondering what your take is on some of those so like would say Dylan Hartley he he captains the team he probably in my opinion has one of his best games in an England jersey against New Zealand only to find himself being dropped for that Australia game likewise if you look at one or two other positional changes you'd wonder does Cipriani have a future? Why is Danny Kerr being popped out of the squad after one performance? Like, do you think Eddie Jones is fully aware of what his best 23 is? Or do you think he's still very much in that kind of ruthless mode of, I need to find the best 23 players that I can trust and I'm going to keep rotating as much as I possibly can until I finally get the answers I want? Uh, that's a great That's a great question. And I think the Six Nations will tell us a lot about that. Another guy to throw into that conversation, although... Um, you know, I hold my I hold my hands up and say that I'd have loved to have seen someone like Alex Good, and I was uh, in at fifteen, yeah. and I was keen Absolutely, to yeah. see I was keen to see how Elliot Daly did. Mike Brown's coming on brilliantly, and so come on brilliantly in the last couple of months. He was fantastic against um, Exeter the other the other night, and you know, if England are going away to play Ireland, they'd pro- they probably want him at fifteen at the minute, while Elliot Daly is learning kind of. Um, a little bit of the finer details of positioning in that 15 which is so important it's so and it's you know positioning of your 15 is just so important to these defensive systems now that Wales and Ireland have where you know that your wingers are up flat because these these 15s have got to cover so much ground um so just yeah. kind of run around those other um, and, and it was really telling just to go back to that Elliot Daly's first game back for Wasps he was straight back in at 13 he's I think he started mm. one game for England at 13 and I think that was sort of a couple of years ago against South Africa, two thousand and sixteen. So, it's it's that's that's an odd one. I think he might get a little bit of game time at thirteen in the lead up to however many games it is, eight games now before the World Cup. But it does seem like it's cutting it fine. But I think it's important to have a look and see if he can go well there. As for the other ones, uh, Dylan Hartley, I feel like I feel like maybe and and it's really uh, the other thing about Eddie Jones is that it's quite dangerous placing too much stock on what he says in press conferences because yeah you know, he said he said he was gonna said he was gonna put his best side out against Japan and then made however many changes, eleven changes or something like that. So mm. take everything with a pinch of salt. But he did say uh, having now said that, gonna I'm gonna place some stock in what he said. He said that um that he was just simply changing the order of Dylan Dylan Hartley and, and Jamie George. I think Dylan had a thumb injury which is why he came off against um against New Zealand at half time and I agree with you that that was a he had a fantastic half and then the line out went to pot which didn't look so good for Jamie I feel like with Dylan you've got to look at someone like Kevin Milamu for New Zealand and mm. the amount of I think he I did I did look it up and I've totally forgotten what the answer was now but I think after the age that Hartley is now um Milamu played something like 40 times for New Zealand I know he's probably a more well certainly probably a more um dynamic player than Dylan, Dylan Hartley but it just goes to yeah. show that that um, of those 40 caps and I think you know 30 odd maybe more than 30 came off the bench as Dane Coles was coming through so there is that dynamic of how you fill in 80 minutes and you know the 60 20 50 30 you know in a 
in a in a in a on a really wet day on a in a World Cup semi final. Um, you might want to reverse the order. You might have, you might want to have Jamie George run around for 50 minutes and then Dylan Hartley come on to be, to be stable. Once you've built a lead, I know if you, if you look at it now, um, that order might've helped them against New Zealand, but after they built that lead. So yeah, difficult. Uh, Cipriani uh, now, so this falls into the category is Cipriani playing so, so, so much better than, George Ford at a domestic level that he is he usurps him as the second best fly half or however Eddie Jones wants to put it. Um, I thought probably on the cusp of that autumn, George Ford was, despite Leicester's struggles, was playing some nice stuff. Tends to fluctuate, but everybody seems to be fluctuating with Leicester at the minute. It's, it's a, it's a, it seems just quite a strange place to be. Um, and until, and, and I think Eddie Jones has kind of outlined this, until Cipriani is head and shoulders above Ford, um, that's going to be a difficult call to make. Breaking up that Ford Farrell, whether it's in the twenty-three or whether it's in the fifteen, um, is going to be a big call because I think actually, if you look at sort of England's second problem area after the breakdown, their midfield, where they've struggled to kind of really settle something for years, I think what what Eddie Jones has been desperate to see since he started the job was uh, Ford Farrell Tuilagi, and I know that there's yeah. kind of we saw a tiny glimpse of it against Australia. Ford, um, sorry, Farrell, uh, Tio Tuilagi. I think that was secondary to the possibilities you've got when, because I, th- I just feel that with Ford, Farrell, and Tuilagi, you've got three guys in their favourite positions. Because you know, you may. I think even, even when Owen Farrell plays at, at ten for Saracens, he loves that second receiver kind of role where he's kind of fading whether it's yeah. either kind of one of those pullback passes from forwards that you see in kind of Brody Retallick do so much and or um whether he's flipping in and out of first receiver with Alex Good and, and Brad Barrett so I, I do think that's their favorite I think that in deep down in Eddie Jones head and it's a big if with with two laggies injury problems but if those three are all fit and in form I think that's his world cup final 10 to 13 um so yeah so for how basically Danny Cipriani has to play extremely, extremely well to break that up. Yeah. Well, I, I, I personally think what he's got going at the minute, he's got the two best hands ahead of him. Mm. And as much as I do rate Cipriani, I don't think, as you were saying, he's at that level, a club level where Eddie Jones is going to break the trust he already has and say, own Farrell or George Ford. So the last thing I want to, and it's quite current and there's, over the last 24 hours, it's been it's been popping up all over social media and every single newspaper you can find is the topic of who's going to be in line to replace Eddie Jones and with, say, Andy Farrell taking over from Joe once he leaves. And when Gatland leaves, you've got uh, Wayne Pivac taking over as well. There's a, a lot of chat saying about Baxter, Lancaster, or even Gatland himself uh, going from Wales to England uh, to tip basically take over after the World Cup from Eddie Jones and I'm just wondering who who do you think would be the best man for the job and and why would you think so? We um <laughs> it's so a tough what, question. It is a really tough question. And, and what I've mentioned at the top there, the kind of the understanding with the clubs, I think the way that um English rugby just is a kind of awareness of of that of those relationships is is going to be essential because otherwise you'll be putting out political fires left, right and centre. Um, the guy that, um, and I think kind of by the time this goes out, it's sort of it's uh, embargo for later on, but Mark McCall's kind of ruled himself out of it because he's and because he's expressly said how much he enjoys working at, at Saracens and how much of a good thing they've got going on with Alex Sanderson, who many, Alex Sanderson, who many kind of um, thought could be in the running to replace Gustard. Uh, I think... I'd look at someone, and again, it's this question of whether he'd want to leave, but Rob Baxter, every yeah. time you go down to Exeter to speak to Rob Baxter, he just drops so many sense bombs on you. It is just, it's fascinating to listen to him and I'm really lucky enough to kind of speak to him over the summer, kind of doing a feature on whether Exeter needed to kind of expand their style because last season they had this sort of, um, had this really interesting season where they played fantastic rugby, but then they, didn't quite manage to topple Leinster and get out of that group in Europe when Europe had been yeah. their big aim. 
and then they didn't manage to retain the Premiership title because Saracens beat them up in the final and were on just on another level. Um, so I kind of went down there and sort of asked, you know, what do you, do you feel like you need to change things tactically? Do you do you feel like you need to go to? How do you feel that you're going to get to this next level? Because it seemed like a tangible step up that they needed to make. And just his answers, yeah. his answers were just great. And if you and if you and if you listen to kind of um, any, anything he says, pretty much, you ask asking the most kind of the most elementary question, he will just he will just give you an answer that will just just seem so straightforward and so kind of easy to follow. And I think someone like that at the helm of of England would be fantastic. I worry for someone like, although I, I hugely respect what uh, Stuart Lancaster has done at Leinster, I think. He's been brilliant. Every I think if if you've got people like Johnny Sexton, pretty much fighting your corner before you get there, and then you're doing something very right. Um, I worry about the pressure if he came back and maybe had a tough Six Nations and lost a couple of games. I just think that would be really pretty horrible to have to deal with. Mm. Um, I like you know, it, it's it's. <sighs> It's it's what sort of risk the RFU are willing to take, and um, someone like Dave Rennie would be fantastic. I thought he would be in the uh, running to uh, replace Gatlin, um, and I know a lot of people know Stuart Barnes um, at the Times uh, had the kind of was fond on him uh, replacing uh, Stuart Lancaster at the time, but uh, the RFU instead went for went for Jones. So yeah, it's just so interesting. I mean. Rob Baxter is the, the kind of the easy one to grasp at, but they've got a kind mm. of they've got a dilemma. Sort of, do they go with someone who's uh, got a tried and tested, and, and they know that they've got that relationship with the club sorted first of all, or do they kind of do they you know go for a little bit of a risk and and approach someone like you know Scott Robertson, Dave Rennie, those those kind of guys? It's really, it's so interesting. And just the last thing on that, with say someone like Stuart Lancaster, who we've touched on it before. Obviously, his reign ended in huge disappointment at the World Cup, but since then, he's kind of rebuilt his confidence as a coach. He's done superb things at Leinster. But even, like, he said it himself that, and I've, you've you've pointed out as well, being the England head coach, it's it's more so, like, managing a lot of things off the pitch as opposed to actually coaching and spending time coaching the players. There's a lot of administrative stuff and a lot of things that go on behind the scene that can be, quite stressful and not so much I don't want to say strange for people but a lot of a lot of a lot of coaches aren't comfortable with it as you've maybe suggested there with Eddie Jones when he first took the job so do you think someone like Lancaster number one like are the would the English public be happy to see him back do they think he's you know improved he's learned his lessons he's now a top coach and then also secondly with that do you think maybe Lancaster doesn't suit that role as much because at Leinster he's in that technical role as senior coach? He just purely gets to coach. He doesn't get to worry about the head coach media and all the sponsorship stuff that Leo Cullen has to deal with. He just basically is out in the training paddock at matches, purely focusing on the performance of the team and players. I think that's great. That's a great point. I think um, I would hope for the first bit of that question. I'd, I'd hope that what he's achieved at, at Leinster has been well covered and well documented enough that people do realise that they're getting a different, a more rounded, more experienced coach with a little bit more outside experience. Um, yeah. And actually that um, that knowledge, we might get onto this later, but that knowledge of how, how Ireland have managed their players' workloads and, and that sort of thing pastorally yeah. can only help England. Um I think what was really telling uh, was that when Paul Gustard left and a kind of another couple of um, candidates you could throw in the ring for after for after Eddie Jones goes, I mean, J- John Mitchell, Steve Borthwick, who were already there and, and Paul Gustard, who's just recently left. But if you look at Paul Gustard, when he left um, England to go to Harlequins, Harlequins split John Kingston's director of rugby job into two um, into two two jobs effectively and they gave the, the post that they gave to to Paul Gustard was head of rugby um and I forget what the other what the other role was actually called but it basically gave and, and Paul Gustard kind of said expressly look I'm a tracksuit coach this is giving me what this is giving me is um 
a look on, a look on selection and then a kind of remit to get my hands dirty in training. And I think that is what Stuart Lancaster just totally craved while he was with England. And it was something that kind of became diluted in his remit. And he was, you know, and he, and he had this job of, of rebuilding a culture that had maybe kind of, um, you know, whatever had happened in, in at Rugby World Cup 2011 or that, that shambles he he was trying to rebuild that and um you know pride in the jersey and all of this thing but what was what was going away was what he was best at i think and that is a that is a really really um really really important thing to bring up richie because um i think if he came back he would have to be so strong on what his remit was and what and how the rfu should they appoint him, how they'd be getting the best out of him. And it seems that Leinster are getting the best out of him and they've um, they've reaped the rewards of that. Mm. And you, you were saying it there um, with regards to the international setup, but also the clubs feeding into that and a huge debate. And I saw a stat there on, I think it was Twitter, where you compared all the Irish internationals playing in the last November test to the English players and more or less every England player bar three or four were straight back into it. And as you were even saying there, Elliot Daly back in at 13 and like you look at a lot of the Irish players, very few of them have even played and I'm sure a lot of them returned this week in the Champions Cup. But like when, when you look at say the big leagues, you look at the pro 14, the top 14 and obviously the premiership in England, like what in your opinion is is the most complete league because in my opinion when I look at the Pro 14 I go the manage the player management of especially the Irish teams but then also some of the Scottish teams as well and even Welsh across the board are really really good people don't get overplayed they can always perform at international levels and ultimately stay fit and perform much more consistently while then you also get results like you had with say Edinburgh and Munster last week where Edinburgh Richard Cockrell even said it he was bringing the second team down there and hoping for the best nearly. Yeah. And you get a, a high scoring game and Edinburgh end up being completely outclassed. While you look at say a premiership team, you look at Wasp, say Saracens there on the weekend, it's more or less the strongest possible teams they can field. So with all those kind of things to take on board, player management, competitiveness, like do you feel that the English premiership could be the best all round or do you think maybe the pro 14 or even say in France, the top 14 and uh, basically what, what would in your view be the best or the overall, the best league? That is another belting question. I think um, it's so hard because, because those flaws are fairly um, pronounced certainly for um, mm. certainly for the premiership, that player load just is, is in a really kind of delicate point of view and, I think we're seeing over the last few years how that is has manifested itself is that it is so difficult to fight on two fronts for a premiership side. It took out, I think it took so much out of Saracens to win, to win that double. And last season, some of slump for English sides was just, just felt inevitable. And it, and I, and, and it's, are they going to make a dent this year in in the champions cup? Exeter have, have been badly damaged by, Sam Simmons injury so it's going to be a tough task for them Gloucester would be the next side um, I'd look at and they've got Exeter in a, in a double header this, this season I still think Gloucester are probably and they probably say so themselves maybe two or three seasons away from from considering their cohesion and their squad depth as good enough to good enough to um, to to fight on two fronts and I think in the premiership it takes sides so long to do that because it takes sides so long to build up this kind of tactical identity and and its depth that they can that they can cover both bases it's just so difficult because because this because for the premiership it's english i think the best way of describing it i think it was uh, chris jones the bbc said that you know the strength of english rugby and the weakness of english rugby is the is the premiership and how competitive that is and it's because you know this jeopardy of relegation just means that teams are, are, are kind of um, having to, you know, leave these test periods and bring back these guys. So if you look at, say, so Quinns played Exeter on last Friday. Exeter chose to mm. rest, rest their England players, but that was with what, you know, that wasn't because, you know, they're resting the players. It was, it was, I think, you know, 
although you know Rob Baxter doesn't make many mistakes, it might have been just as much to rest them as it was because they had they've got Europe round the corner, Champions Cup. Whereas Quinns brought back their players because they know they ha- they're in the Challenge Cup and then can therefore. And Danny Care's off on holiday sort of this week because he's in in yeah. Barbados. So you know, it's it it's kind of flooded priorities. It's 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 difficult. It really is difficult in the Premiership. Um, does you move on to the Pro 14? Does the product um, suffer because because they can't because they do rest a lot of the internationals probably, but then there are kind of knock on benefits of that. So it's a virtuous circle whereby these young the young Leinster kids that thrashed the Dragons. I mean that was you know because what I consider myself kind of watch a watch a fair bit of rugby that Leinster side I probably heard of. I mean a third of them. They, they were, and that was you know yeah. that was and that was good and that and those were guys who'd starred for Ireland under twenties and 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 stuff like that. It was real. It was a real kind of. But you but then you know that those of that that the environment that those young guys are coming into is going to be fantastic and they're going to have trained with the first team with the first team utter rock stars. So they're going to. It's kind of the rich get richer in a sense. The top fourteen, <laughs> I think, what. Um, what English rugby would be would be um, envious of from the top fourteen standpoint is that thriving second tier that they've got and those and those kind of that second tier where that has really big attendances and really big strong clubs in that fighting and they know that when they go up although um, I'm not sure whether that's happened this season they know that a lot of the time when a promoted side comes up they will come up with a big budget and they will be able to establish themselves and get and string a few results together like for example Lyon like that sort of thing happens in France yeah. I think a little bit more regularly than it would do in England because if you look and I were talking we'll move on to it I'm sure but um, the talk of abolishing relegation that's kind of um, accelerated this season because of how crazy the bottom of the league is and how even the bottom of the league is Um that's kind of, uh, yeah, that's uh, sort of, oh, sorry, I've lost my, lost my train of thought, Richie. Um, so the, the kind of... About the relegations. Yeah. Yeah, so so that, that sorry, yeah, so that is based on, what that's based on is um, there being viable guys fighting in the championship to, um, to, to, to establish themselves in the premiership. And people keep saying, oh, you know, one, two, I've got two words to two words to kind of argue against relegation Exeter Chiefs Exeter Chiefs were, were, an, were an, an anomaly for a load of reasons and they had a really they've, they've managed their business side of things very well they had a fantastic coach they've got a big catchment area a strong catchment area good schools around the club and they kept a side together that that stayed you know fought tooth and now to stay to stay in the division and they had really intelligent recruitment going on a lot of things went right for them um, so below, you know, you've got that those thirteen guys that have those P shares at the minute that seem to be all important. Below that, you're looking at Ealing, um, Jersey. Uh, in, you know, it's 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 fairly thin. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think English rugby basically would be would be envious of that second tier of uh, of French rugby, and that might solve a lot of problems um, because you'd keep the jeopardy of relegation, but yet you'd still have a a fairly strong um, title fight, but yeah, I think you, we could go round and round circles. But it's yeah, it, there is there are bits that people would certainly want to borrow from um, from from each league, and it's it's just it is it's a fascinating kind of mismatch. But when it comes together in Europe, at the minute, the Pro 14 sides who've got that ability to rest players and then unleash them all, I think that's probably standing out really at the minute. Yeah, especially as like recently, as you were saying there with with Saracens to get that uh, finally get European trophy on board, it seemed to just take them more. Like, forget about the physical exertion, emotionally, it seemed to take so much out of that club um, that they seem to have now nearly hit a dip last season. But now they seem to be picking back up the momentum and seem to be back to their their best. But then you compare that to someone like Leinster who essentially can play their third string team against the Dragons, pick up a bonus point win, then pretty much make, I'd nearly argue, 20, 21 changes to the squad yeah, uh, for Bath this week. Mm-hmm. And they're feeling fresh, they're hungry, 
and also there's a great bit of morale in the squad because the guys who are going to be holding tackle bags this week in team runs a week ago got a bonus point win so the morale as a whole collective would obviously be very very good yeah um so just on one quick thing on irish rugby as i think it'd be rude not to of course especially after the few the few months we've had like it, obviously ireland now a lot can change in the next eight to ten months leading towards the world cup but right now you look at new zealand's biggest threat and i'd say it would be ireland obviously there's You've got the English, you've got even Wales coming up and even South Africa, maybe one or two other nations, but the main standout would be the Irish. And I don't think I'm being biased in saying that. But what what do you think is needed? Like, do you think Ireland are ready and more or less the finished product and good enough to win a World Cup right now? Or do you still think there's aspects of their game or maybe one or two selections that might need to be changed for them to be just go that extra step? Because when it gets to World Cups, we have a terrible history of just basically not i don't say bottling it because it's too harsh of a word but just basically being a bit under underwhelming at times and not reaching our full potential yeah i i I don't think it's unfair to say that they're new zealand's biggest challenges at all i I was delighted that they won because it would have been a real shame for them to have been in such good form going into that november and and having these guys play so well in the summer and that i thought that was a fantastic series against australia but for them to have to finish off that year in that way was just really satisfying to watch because it was just a mark of what they built up all year, I thought. Um, I think Mm. they're reliant, and I think a lot of teams would be reliant on a player like Johnny Sexton because just just the amount of control he can exert on a game and the amount of times that he comes up in what they call these clutch moments to deliver these game-changing moments, I think that's that has bred maybe a sense of reliance but I think that's that's a natural thing really I think where you're talking about maybe this if if they would have had this psychological block from from the world cup thing I think where they're helped is how influential and how good the young copper players they've got guys like James Ryan would be scared of absolutely nothing now in his career because of what he's achieved um same goes for people like you know Dan Levy, Jordan Lama, all all of these guys, Ian Henderson, who from just slightly that slight younger generation that won't be necessarily tied down by it, um, and success breeds success in, in that in that in that way. So they'll go to they'll go to this World Cup with maybe scars of of people that have been around um, underwhelming World Cup campaigns, but they'll have that enthusiasm to balance it out. And I think that's that's where the mix is so so good for Ireland and so potent at the minute. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm fascinated to see to see how they go. Because, and what I think you can you can tell how much they're respected on a global scale because now that that group game between New Zealand and and South Africa is effectively to to avoid New Ireland in the in the quarterfinal yeah. now. And who would have thought that? Um, however many years ago. Although having said that, as you as you mentioned. Uh, Ireland have obviously got Scotland in their group. That'll be really interesting. Um, and I think I think the dark horses are Wales um, for the for the yeah, whole tournament. Because I just think I think one they've got a guy in Warren Gatland who's who's just made a career out of galvanising teams against against causes against the odds. I think he absolutely adores tournament rugby. I think he'll have his players together for a long time and get them super fit. Um, and he's actually shown possibly like. Um, like Eddie Jones in recent times, just that ability to um, expand his own horizons. Because I think um, Wales over summer in in Argentina. Well, actually, if you take this whole World Cup cycle, and they went they went to New Zealand at the beginning of it, didn't they? And they and they lost that series. Mm. Stayed 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 close in in three Test matches for sixty, and then got pumped in the last twenty. And I think they learnt a lot for that, and where they needed to go with kind of upskilling their type forwards and everything. I think they've. They've really been the big movers of this World Cup cycle, but yeah, I'm 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 delighted for Ireland that they that they won that game in the manner in which they did it as well. It wasn't it it was as convincing a win over New Zealand as they could have could have hoped for, and they've just got those and 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 having done that without. I mean, we've talking. I mean, I've spoken about the reliance that they'll have on Johnny Sexton. They did that without Colin Murray. I don't think it's a bigger story, as big a story that they did it without Sean O'Brien, but that just goes to show how far they've come. That you know, Dan Levy pulled yeah. out as well, and Josh van der Fleer was just fantastic. They've got somebody like Reese Ruddock who who could 
who could rock up and do a job in that back row. That, that back row is absolutely stacked. I was delighted for uh, Kieran Marmion playing. You know, I think he's, I saw he got a little bit of stick about his box kicking, but everywhere yeah. else, I thought he was fantastic. Um, so yeah, that's that's where that's where Ireland are at. They've got this. I think Joe Schmidt. What's 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 really cool watching um, Ireland is that Joe Schmidt's fingerprints are just. Um, I mean, just the way that they unlock teams with little plays. It's really yeah. cool to watch that. He's he's, he's clearly a, a coach who's um, at the peak of his powers and, and really in tune with his players, and that, and that's really cool. No, I'd agree. And like as you were saying there, you, you know a Joe Smith team when you see it, whether it's through a power play or whether it's Andy Farrell's stamp on the defense. Mm. You can it's it's a team that just has its own identity, and every single week it fulfills that identity, which. As I was saying earlier on the show, that like Eddie Jones is probably searching for that, and there's one or two other teams that are searching for that. I think Warren Gatland has had that ever since he's been there. Mm. It's a, you know Warren Gatland Welsh team when you see it, mm. so it's it's great to see that. But then also as you touched on it there, the ability to have young players come in like your Larmers, like James Rhymes, or even people like Andrew Porter who can just oh, yeah. slot into international level just like that, and are in a system they're comfortable in is it's it's reassuring to see as a fan because you basically have trust in the players, but more so you actually have trust in the coach and the system that you're seeing every week. 100%. But uh, the last topic I'd like to cover is, and it's, it's it kind of links back to England's are more so own Farrell is a huge topic in the game currently is around the tackle area and the laws or the perceived laws on it. But jokes aside, a huge worry I personally have leading towards the world cup is the consistency over the officiating with regards to the tackle area, whether it's the ball carrier defender, there seems basically every two or three weeks, there seems to be a video popping up online where people view it and go, geez, that's a ridiculous red card. How is Sergio Parise getting sent off for basically catching a ball off a kickoff? How is Zone Farrow getting away with pretty much doing a NFL shoulder charge on mm. his line? But a huge con- worry I have is just the consistency over the laws and how referees seem to have different interpretations of it. Like, like, would you agree or disagree that it's something they need to focus on and get clamped down right now? Because I just feel if in eight, ten months' time it's still a grey area and there's inconsistencies, it could potentially ruin a huge sceptical or sorry spectacle, like a World Cup final or semi final or quarter final. Like the last thing I want to see is a dodgy decision or a red card given when half of the people would argue it shouldn't be given or the other half saying it should. I just, I'd like, I'd like a good bit of clarity on it. Yeah. I'd, I'd caveat. Um, I th- so I think this, this, uh, you know, we've spoken about how compelling and interesting this, this November series was. I think one caveat to that is that there were a, f- a few, that inconsistency was infuriating at times. And if you look at, how something? I mean, the, the one that sticks out for me for some reason, and, we, and well, aside from the Farrell ones, which were crazy, was Samu Karevi's on the halfpenny. I just, I, I cannot see how that isn't a reckless challenge. It looked like the definition of reckless, yeah. and, it, and you know, it doesn't. It's immaterial that he didn't mean to kind of wipe out halfpenny after a kick. It was the fact that he'd put himself in that position. After I just thought it was bizarre. A caveat, kind of caveat that again by saying that. These decisions are going to come under the microscope, both for both because the conversation has thankfully changed, I think, or is changing. I think people really are one aware of how important it is to kind of protect these players, and two aware of what sort of tackles are most likely to to cause this damage to both the tackle player and the tackler. Sort of these upright tackles. I think it was it was such a truism that wasn't you know has now been proven to be uh, just that that players going low, you're more likely to get concussed because you're going to get a knee or a hip in the in the head. I think you know, that's obviously still a risk. But the work through the work that World Rugby and Ross Tucker have done and, and those sort of guys, people now know that those upright tackles are the, are the most dangerous ones. So that's good. But what's, what's happening, obviously, is these test matches are so tight that these decisions are so important because they swing games either way. I have to admit, so... Torn on the Farrell ones just because the first one was in the stadium for it, and on the big screen that 
Angus Gardner looked at. He, and he's, I think he said, you know, there's enough of a wrap for me. It did actually look on the big screen like it, the angle from behind looked like he tried to wrap that arm because because height wise height wise it was fine. It was just that it was it was shoulder. Shots. I have no idea how Yako Piper came to the decision he did with the the Isaac Rodder one. That just looked that looked like a and and the way kind of Farrell stayed down after both of them he was aware that he was in trouble I think yeah uh, he, he thought he'd he thought he'd won well first one given away the game second given away the penalty try two other things to kind of maybe um maybe consider on on that front is the first one it takes serious bottle from a referee to basically restart a game that England have won at Twickenham to give away a penalty yeah. that was it would have been and you know Angus Gardner got it wrong he's admitted that he probably got it wrong subsequently um, but it would have taken huge bottle and to be fair to him neither of the touch judges there stepped in they were neither of them were making that call either um, yeah like I said the the, uh, the Rodder one was was bizarre but you could maybe say that Owen Farrell is developing this sort of I mean, he's looked kind of untouchable to referees a little bit, which I mean is a is a good thing until it's not. It's a good thing until he carries on doing that, and um, as you say, gets gets sent off in the in England's group game against France that they end up losing, and then they're up against it against Argentina with a suspend with Farrell suspended. That's not a good look. So, I think I think it certainly needs to change from from his standpoint. But also, like you say, the main thing is is that players know where they stand because going into the World Cup. Under that sort of cloud is is just going to really ruin it. I think one th- one point I sort of wrote down that I wanted to make on this was that I feel that the current laws are kind of selling out players and referees a little bit because World Rugby mm-hmm. want to change this behaviour and they feel like the most the best way that they they can change this behaviour is by in game sanctions. I just kind of query whether. Um, changing the law just might help them out a little bit because they're, they're trialing at the minute, they're trialing this nipple height law. And that, you know, obviously yeah. gives you that buffer zone between the shoulder line where the, where the law currently is and, you know, the, and the nipple is a small area as well, but at least gives this sort of buffer zone where there can be a penalty as opposed to a tackle on the, on the shoulder line. That's fine. And a tackle a cent a millimeter above that, that's suddenly a red card. And I just feel yeah. like that, that's oh, I don't know whether it stops it, but it theoretically gives referees that little bit more clarity. It theoretically stops the game being being halted over a million replays. Um, it might be wishful thinking, but the game that I went to, I went to go and watch the first game that played. It didn't it didn't seem to alter the spectacle at all. Players um, that made high tackles were, yeah, no, I get it. Back ten. Um, it will change little things about the game, but if if you look at the changes that have been brought in to change behaviour, how many tip tackles, how many kind of big collisions in the air do we see now? It's it's a, it's fewer than than when these sanctions have have been brought in. So maybe maybe that is the right way to go. I think it's just a shame that we're potentially we're on the cusp of a World Cup and and inconsistencies. It's just that spectre of them ruining it. But the other thing is that you've. You, you, these are these are switched on guys at, at World Rugby. The switched on guys, these officials can certainly speak for the RFU officials, having kind of spoken to them a lot, having seen the way they train and how diligent they are. They're going to do everything they can to be impartial, be impartial, and be consistent over these things. So, you know, we do got to have a bit of faith in those guys too. And that's a pretty comprehensive answer. So, last thing I do on these podcasts is I just do a quick fire round cool. and usually on um, the proper um, podcast with some of the other guests, I'd ask some more personal questions since this is a sports team themed one, it'll be more to do with predictions and your favorite matches and stuff like that. So whatever, whatever comes first into your head, just say it yeah. and just roll with it. So question one would be, what was your favorite rugby match of all time? Go one that uh, got me into rugby, which was second test um, Lions Australia two thousand and one. Well, uh, your favourite film of all time? Oh, do you know what? Um, I ask people this all the time. I've just watched uh, The Martian for about the sixth time, and that was I love The Martian. Yeah, The Martian with Matt Damon. Yeah, yeah good flick. 
So this is predictions now. So who do you fancy for the Champions Cup, Six Nations and World Cup? Leinster, Wales, New Zealand. Okay. Uh, Tear coffee. Coffee. Uh, what is your favourite book of all time? I want to read and read and read. Something, something Ernest Hemingway. Uh, definitely afternoon. Okay. What is the worst advice you hear being given in your world? Um, do as much work experience as you can for free. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, second last one. Who is your favorite player to interview or I'll add in coach. It could be either player or coach. I just, just say one that kind of came into my head while we were talking. I interviewed, uh, Gervin Dempsey that started the season. That was brilliant. Absolutely fascinating guy. Mm. I think I read that article actually. It was about him bringing some of his bits to Leinster to Bath. Yeah, he was. He was um, just you know, just where well, you're nodding and nodding and nodding and nodding. It was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and the last one is describe yourself in three words. You can, you can you have a hyphen. Hard, hardworking, conscientious. Um, it's tough. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Hard, hard, hard. Can you have hard work and conscientious? Or is that, yeah, yeah, cool. Good. Forget the hype. Forget the hyphen. Yeah. Um, well, that pretty much concludes it, Charlie. So I just want to thank you for coming on, and I really enjoyed talking. Whether it's about Eddie Jones's journey as England manager to the laws of the game, so I just appreciate you taking your time out. No worries. And really um, I'm it. looking forward to looking forward to reading your coverage on the months ahead and I'm sure in your field it's going to be a very exciting year ahead covering rugby no worries I really appreciate it it was a lot of fun thanks for sorry about that brain fart about the relegation <laughs> no worries at all anyway thank you very much Charlie. cheers pal thank you